because one of the first lessons I think public adjusters must learn is that we can't force the insurance company to do anything. Only a court can force them. We can do everything to prepare for that step and we can really put a lot of pressure and leverage on this. By the way, when the storm coming up a couple weeks, uh, all of us were all very excited and we're all VIP and we've got some very fancy parties that we're going to. So I know you're excited. I'm excited. My wife's excited, but she wants to make sure that she's dressed for the occasion. It's incredible. And a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people in business, people that are our age, they have no clue. Uh, the power that's there and it's accessible for all of us. It's not something you have to pay a million dollars to engage in. One of the first things that we deal with and tackle when we go into a claim is reserves, claim reserves. Some people don't understand the importance and some of the intricacies that go into setting the reserves. And also another thing that the claim reserves are used for is to calculate reinsurance rates. Actually becoming a competent public adjuster takes a lot more work than just getting a license. And it's important that people in the industry understand that. I agree. Uh, it took me about five or six years. And that's when I really, as I just started to get better and better and better, I became extremely prideful of my job. Well, Vince, why do you do all this? What's what's the point? Why are you giving away all this free information? And you're just doing all this and, and you're not really getting anything in return. You're, you're helping a contractor settle his own claim. You're helping another public adjuster settle his own claim. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I can to help these people settle their own claim. But when they can't, guess who they're going to go to? What's up, advocates? And welcome back to another episode of the Claims Game Podcast. Special guest today with TJ Ware. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, remember that we are sponsored by Fortez Health. Fortez Health is a really great company that we've been working with for a while now. Uh, they provide all kinds of uh, PPE uh, products and and materials and gloves and masks and all kinds of stuff. If you're if you're you know still concerned or anything like that with COVID or you're going into any place that you really you're supposed to be wearing masks, uh, it's probably a good idea that you get it from here. Uh, they're all certified and just really really good products that they've got. Also, if you're in the mold game and you've got to wear all this stuff anyway, it's a really great place where you can get uh, some really good products and a discount too. If you put in Vince twenty, you'll get a twenty percent off discount on any kind of product that you order. So. Go ahead, Fortez Health. All right. Uh, the other thing that we've got is we've got a great special guest today. Uh, we've got TJ Ware. TJ Ware is the owner of Paradise Claims. Uh, TJ Ware has uh, been an adjuster for quite a while, and frankly, he's what you call a large loss adjuster. So anybody who's interested in getting into large losses, this is the podcast for you to listen to. He gets on buildings all the time. He's got probably about $30 million in open claims. That's right, $30 million. And uh, you could find him everywhere. You could find him on Facebook and Instagram. I think on Instagram, he's a large loss adjuster. On Facebook, you could find him at TJ Ware. He's very, very prevalent on social media, so he's really easy to find. Uh, but he's a really great guy, too. Uh, I know he's, he's okay with me saying that if you want to go ahead and message him, he'll be happy to help you guys out. Uh, but we talk about all kinds of stuff. He lives in Dallas-Fort Worth, so we talk about the frozen storm that they had and all how crazy it was and all the stuff that they were dealing with. Uh, we talk about, obviously, the big loss in commercial claims. He really laid his Mark, though, after Hurricane Laura in, um, in, uh, in Louisiana. So we talk about Lake Charles and, and Hurricane Laura and all the damage and destruction that happened uh, there. We talk about the fact that he's got not one, not two, not three, but nine kids. 
that's right, nine kids. Uh, it's also very prevalent into the Storm Ventures group, and we've got Win the Storm coming up, so this is definitely like a prequel to Win the Storm. And uh, we talk about all kinds of stuff. I mean, really, really, really great interview. I consider him a close friend here in the industry, and I think you guys will get a lot out of this. Uh, so please stay tuned. TJ Ware, Paradise Claims. You're going to like this one. Let's get it. Welcome to the Claims Game Podcast with Vince Perry. Get all the tips you need from insurance claim advocates and professionals and grow your public adjusting career to the next level. And now the commercial claims advocate, Vince Perry. I see you smiling. You kind of like it, huh? Well, I'm usually smiling, aren't I? Wait, so that means you don't like it? I did like it. It was awesome. I mean, come on. It, it only cost me about 55 bucks on Fiverr. Oh, yeah. For the price. Now, Fiverr, like, is it 55? That's what it costs, or they had to do it like 11 times? No, it was the first time. It's pretty much all they offer is whatever it is that they come out with. And I'm like, all right, this is cool. They're like, well, what, what kind of stuff do you like? I said, well, I like hip hop. And here's uh, what we're doing. Here's what it's all about. What do you got? And then he gave it to me. Well, not I yet. like it. It was pretty good. I can work. I do actually, I do voiceover work. So I'm going to record one for you also. Voiceover work. Do you really? Yeah, I do. What? what well, please, please explain. Like, welcome to the Vince Perry commercial claims podcast. That's pretty good. Maybe I should have you do uh, the, the intro 2.0. Yeah, I think so. Come on. We all know, TK. <laughs> We're not talking about claims today. We're talking about music producing. Man, I think it's awesome. Like, I, that's my next career is being a music promoter. I've decided that. It's <laughs> awesome. You heard it here first, people. TJ Ware, one of the most famous public adjusters in social media right now. The guy's on top of a master, massive freaking project every single time. But it's not about claims. It's about music production. Why do you want to be a music producer? Well, I really want to be a promoter because I like meeting people. I like networking. I really like music. And uh, I just think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, but just a promoter. Like, see, when I think of a promoter, I'm from Miami and we used to go to South Beach all the time and forget even before South Beach in high school, we used to have flyers. I mean, we got into so much trouble because there would be flyers all over the hallways in high school. And it was all about these parties on Friday and parties on Saturday night. And then as I got a little bit older, obviously over 18, over 21, the parties were at South Beach. That's where we were going. We're going to the clubs and stuff like that. And the way we were able to get into the club was because we knew the promoter. That's what I think when I think of music promoter, but you're talking about something different. Well, I think even those guys, I think they do real well with that. Sometimes they make good money if they're promoting good people, uh, popular artists and things like that. I think they actually make a ton of money. They get to network with amazing people, influential people, uh, and they get to go do a lot of fun things. Would it be like artists you'd be promoting? Dude, we're not talking about claims. So if you think we're talking about claims, we're only talking about music right now. So let's go. So, man, listen, business is business. I'm like an entrepreneur through and through. I love insurance claims. This is probably the favorite business I've ever done, right? But I have interest other place. I can see the potential profits in a lot of different business models. And I think if you can combine what you do well and get paid for with a little bit of fun and glamour, you know, why not do it? 
Well, if you actually do this one of these days, I might actually have your first client. Uh, one of my best friends, he's a pretty big time DJ. Uh, he's really in the scene. So you may not know who he is. His name, shout out to my boy, DJ Danny Days. Uh, Danny has been a DJ since I used to go. I used to, I used to help him set up in house parties when we were in high school. I would help him set up his whole thing. I'd be hanging out. Oh my goodness. That's dope. That's the that's the stuff that's going on in my house right now. Sorry, podcast listeners. Uh, anyway, Danny used to Danny used to. Um, <laughs> you hear that too? Just a little bit. It's not that bad. What is it? I'm putting in putting in tile, and I was doing baseboards and painting and stuff like that. Oh. Bought a house. It's- well, I'm having a staff meeting in the other room, so I just heard them all laugh. Somebody must have said something funny. So it is what it is. Um, so Danny, I used to, we used to help him set up 15, 16 years old. And then, I mean, long story short, I mean, the guy has lived in Amsterdam. He's lived in Germany and Berlin. He's traveled all over the world. He's one of the biggest electronic music producers on the scene. And like, he's, I, there's a, there's a big event, uh, a three points festival going on in, in, in Miami at the end of April. And when I'm talking like, it's like Wu Tang, some other artists, some other artists. And he's like right here. Just, yeah. just insane how when you grow up with somebody, when you're like you're in high school and then he gets to a level where it's just like legitimate stardom, especially in that scene. It's just really cool to see. I've gone with him to, you ever been to Club Live in Miami? No, I haven't. Oh, it's off the chain. <laughs> anyway, I've gone with well, him to Club Live behind the DJ well, booth behind him. Like, I mean, just like amazing parties. We'll have to do this sometime. It sounds fun. What? It's the most amazing thing. I tell all my friends, like that, when I first met Annabelle, my wife, that's what we did. So she thought I was like the coolest person in the world. I totally fooled her right off the bat. I said, come on, we're going to, we're going to a party uh, at Club Live with my boys, the DJ. And he was the main event. And we were behind the DJ booth the whole time. And I'm talking smoke and confetti and all kinds of stuff. It was just like a euphoric, euphoric feeling just being there and with that music and everything. It's incredible. That's cool, man. Yeah, well, you know, you're in Florida. There's a lot of fun stuff like that in Florida. There's a little bit of that here in Texas, but honestly, you know, I've been running businesses and hustling for years. I got a bunch of little kids. So I'm just now getting into that phase of my life where I can go have fun and go to nightclubs and stuff. Well, when you say kids, come on, tell everybody how many kids you got, TJ. Yeah, it's like 124, I think. Probably feels it feels like, like it. Uh, but yeah, nine kids. Uh, we have nine kids, all ours. Uh, I should get you a little photo that you can edit and superimpose. So I actually carry a nice photo, family photo on my phone, accessible at all times because no one believes me. Uh, But yeah, I do have nine kids. My oldest is 16. My youngest is three. People ask me all the time if I'm Mormon or Catholic. I'm not. Uh, Nothing against either group. But I just happen to be... uh, guy with a really, really, really big family. And it's insane because uh, you travel with your family too, right? Because you are, I would consider a traveling public adjuster. Definitely. Uh, we, we do disaster recovery and storm work all over the country. And pretty much my wife and I work together. If we're gone for more than two days, then we'll usually bring the entire family. And we're, we're some places we're there for weeks or months. What is it like bringing the entire family? sometimes it's great nine people nine sometimes it's great i mean there's it's always a logistical challenge right we're used to it though sometimes it's great uh louisiana was a little bit rough it was brutal that was a it was a more difficult situation than i 
really had ever envisioned being in. So that was challenging for for everybody, really. But, uh, you know, the previous years, I worked uh, hurricanes in North Carolina, and I took my boat out there with me. And so on the weekends, we're out uh, in the Outer Banks on the boat. It's a lot of fun. Can can I, can what's what, I, I, there's a story that I would, maybe you don't want to talk about. It, there was one time where you forgot one kid. <laughs> Maybe yeah, we were. About, or you can give me another story, but I would like, what I really wanted to ask was a really funny story. What it's like to travel with nine kids. So yeah, this story, it's funny now, right? It was traumatic at the time, but I think we had six kids at the time we were driving to Key West. We spent Christmas and new year's in Key West that year. We're driving through Southern Louisiana on I-10. We're pulling a boat behind our van. My wife had a 12 passenger van and I have, I have, six boys now i don't remember how many boys at the time but they have to pee all the time so we just pulled over on the side of the freeway they jumped out they peed it's the middle of the night it's december it's cold they jumped back in we took off down the road and about 30 minutes later the other kids started freaking out in the back and they said seth's not in here seth's not in here so we had left our six-year-old on the side of i-10 at 11 p.m at night southern louisiana pitch black dark and it's like 30 minutes behind us. So my wife was like, back up, back up. And I, was like, I can't back up with a trailer for 30 miles. So I just floored it. And I said, call 911. And they did. And they were searching for him. And I went back to the direction. They said, what, what mile marker? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, this minus 30, maybe. And eventually we got back uh, in the area. Somebody had seen him on the side of the road and take him and dropped him off at the corner store where a police officer was. And so we picked him back up. So within an hour of it happening, we were back on the road to Florida like nothing had happened. But it was a traumatic 30 minutes in the meantime. Goodness, I can't imagine. I mean, when you've got when you've got six kids, nine kids, whatever, it is, you have to do a head count like all the time. Right. There has to be like, all right, ready, like. That incident is the reason. So my kids, we do roll call every single time we get in a car together, uh, we, we do roll call. And if the kids say here for another kid, they get in big trouble because they'll throw the roll call off. So uh, that's something that we've done religiously ever since. And I don't think we've left a parking lot without a kid since. We have left many stores or places and we do roll call before we get out of the parking lot and we turn around, and go back up there and find the other one. Yeah. I mean, cause you've got a five or six year old kid. I mean, they're going to wander. They're going to do what they do when you're looking out for all these kids. I mean, it's going to happen from time to time. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, kudos to you. I mean, that's, that's really, that's really just, it's just badass to be, to, to be able to have, to be able to have the amount of kids and I've met your kids and TJ, they're great freaking kids. Thanks how, Vince. How you, uh, how you, how the two of you have been able to, to just raise nine really solid kids. Uh, from what I've seen, they all help you out uh, at the conventions and, and, they, and they help you do a lot of things. Uh, I think we were talking about the other day, you've even got maybe one or two that are really considering, you know, maybe being public adjusters and actually helping with claims and stuff like that. I mean, that, I think that really goes to show uh, the integrity, the kind of person you are and how you're raising your kids and, and the fact that they even some of them want to follow along in your footsteps, I think is pretty awesome. No, I appreciate it. It's, it's cool. It's fun. Uh, my oldest son now, He's almost 17, and he does quite a bit of Matterporting for us. Uh, he's got a nice Matterport, and so he goes out and does those services, some other scoping stuff. 
it's good and bad. You know, the kids have been exposed to the industry of public adjusting and roofing. And um, there's a ton of money there. So some of my older kids that are ambitious, they'll never push a, a cart at a grocery store because they know that they can go make hundreds or thousands of dollars adjusting claims as soon as they're able to do so. And until then, they can make really good money kind of doing the support services. Yeah. Support services like helping you at a convention where now at SBG, I've got my, I've got my, I've got my, um, my booth and I'm going to be on my own. You, at least you've got nine kids that can help you with the booth and, and run around and do different things. So I guess you didn't know, but some other guys know like Matt Danskin, he's a pretty big guy in the industry. He borrowed my kids at RoofCon and they were over there willing and dealing, selling his services. So I will loan a couple of kids out to you yes. if you need some help with the booth. <laughs> yes. I might actually take you up on that offer, my friend. Sure. Do it. So you're in Dallas. Winter storm. I was just there. I was in Houston for a few days. Uh, I was in Dallas where we we met up. We had dinner together. Um, but you were there, boots on the ground, the days that it was all just really going down. Uh, a couple things. Well, I want to know about your experience, especially that first, those first couple of days. And I actually want to talk about some of the really cool things that you did on Facebook that I thought were really awesome. But tell me about those first couple of days. I mean, it was just, uh, it went from being this situation where, hey, let's have fun and let's have a snow day for a few days to a point to where I was actually very concerned, uh, even with our own house. Fortunately, I I'm on a part of the grid where there's, uh, uh, there's a, a switching station in the electrical grid right by my house. And uh, because of that, and I know this because I've got some friends at the utility, uh, they kept our house on as well. So I never lost power. But if if we had lost power, you know, people's options were very limited. So there were people that slept in their cars for days. So it started getting pretty concerning. Uh, and when my power stayed on, I thought I may start hosting people at my house who had lost power for extended periods of time. Our well did freeze up. My daughter's bathroom froze up. It dropped two degrees below zero one night after it had been in single digits for multiple days. It was unprecedented. And uh, once the pipes started bursting, I really had no idea that it would expand to the scale that it did. But we kind of sprang into action just because that's what we do. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. So for weeks, you know, we just went 16 hours a day and, and I just couldn't even help myself. I, I enjoy sales a lot. And so when we get into a situation right after natural disaster, I can barely sleep. I'm up all day, every day, just expending all of that energy and enjoying the process and helping people in the meantime. I could, I mean, I feel like I could compare it to when we've got, we've got hurricanes in Miami, we've got hurricanes in Florida. Uh, it's, it's pretty intense. I mean, at least for the first, for the first few weeks, it's just like, it's nonstop. There's no time for lunch. There's no time for breakfast. There's no time for much of anything. Cause you just got to go from one to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, it was, it was, it was pretty intense, huh? I mean, you were just going from one house to the yeah, next. I, I agree. You know, I work a lot of hurricanes. It did feel the same, right? But here's, what's interesting is that you would drive down a street and you would have no idea that three or four of the homes on the street may be completely collapsed internally, except maybe you would see water running out of the garage or the front door. Aside from that, it was hard to, it was hard to tell 
unlike a hurricane, you can see the damage to these homes. So it was a pretty interesting situation. And the resources for dry out and mitigation were, at, were, they were they were consumed in minutes once the pipes started breaking everywhere. Right, right. And you were you were telling me to, well, well, one of the things you did that I thought was really cool is you started a Facebook group. Uh, I think it's what, DFW Pipe Burst or something? That's right. And uh, I thought that was great because it was really an opportunity to bring people together who were looking for the services that they needed. But one of the things that I thought you were, that I found interesting was because you are an adjuster who you are a former roofer, correct? You were a roofer. Uh, so you are an adjuster who deals with a lot of roof claims, a lot of hail claims, a lot of wind claims and stuff like that. This was not your first time, obviously not, but this was something that for a lot of people, especially in the Dallas and Texas area that are more sort of used to getting on a roof and finding hail damage and finding whatever it is, this was more of like an inside job of water damage and having to make sure the dry out process was done correctly, the repairs were done correctly, gathering the documentation of all that to make sure it's done correctly. I thought that was interesting too, because you're a very experienced public adjuster and a lot of the adjusters out there are, but for this, this was something a little bit new. Definitely. It was an interesting situation. It was unprecedented. And a lot of the local roofing companies did step up to try to meet that call for help, uh, even though they really weren't well equipped to do it. So uh, the Pipe Burst group was able to connect a lot of different people, professionals, you know, B2B as well as B2C. And it was able to help me get a lot of information out to policyholders to help them through the process. And then one of the local news stations decided to feature it on their newscast. And so that caused it to take off a little more as well. So the power of social media is incredible and it can be very useful right after natural disasters. Isn't it powerful? Social media. It's crazy. No, it's incredible. And a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't understand a lot of people in business, people that are our age, they have no clue uh, the power that's there and it's accessible for all of us. It's not something you have to pay a million dollars to engage in. It's just time, but I've got, because you and I, I think have done a pretty good job at it. For those of you that don't know, TJ is like, if there's anybody that I'm second to in, 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 in social media, it's definitely the TJ. TJ does a phenomenal job of really, of really getting out there and sort of promoting himself to the right people like restoration contractors and roofers and stuff like that. It's really phenomenal. Uh, but I had somebody the other day, what it does is it establishes you as an expert in the industry. So I had somebody the other day go, well, Vince, why do you do all this? What's what's the point? Why are you giving away all this free information and you're just doing all this and and you're not really getting anything in return? You're, you're helping a contractor settle his own claim. You're helping another public adjuster settle his own claim. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I can to help these people settle their own claim. But when they can't, guess who they're going to go to? That's right. And, you know, content, it's all about just consistently putting that content out there without expecting an instantaneous return. And you just continue to put the content out there. And, and a great thing, like you said, being an expert in the industry, now a potential client of yours, all they've got to do is Google Vince Perry, and they're going to see all of this information that comes up. And so that obviously has worked well for me. That's helped me close a lot of claims. Uh, just because of how some of this can help you rank in search engines, along with other content. Signed a nice claim here just last week. Um, he's like, hey, can you send me something, uh, just your credentials? And I just typed in www.commercialclaimsadvocate.com. He signed the contract yeah. and an hour later. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. He's like, whoa. He's like, you're the adjuster's adjuster. I'm like, yeah, pretty much, kind of, sort of, somewhat. 
So you got, so are you still, still signing claims left and right? Like, are there, is it, are you still busy as all hell in Dallas? And, and We're super busy. Uh, new claims have slowed down in Dallas a little bit. I've started signing more back up in Louisiana. That's kind of picked back up, uh, you know, so it's been a good week there. Um, but the Dallas claims, like this is just the first wave. There'll be another wave and maybe a third wave. You know, there's usually a second wave after all the contractors realize, hey, we just can't get this done. And then there's usually that third wave, at least at some point before the statute of limitations expires. Is that where you're getting most of your referrals from? Is it is it mostly contractors? I get a lot of contractor referrals. Um, some of the social media stuff has reached directly to consumers and I have good networks. I'm, I'm you know, a huge networker. I refer a lot of people and in turn, some people refer me back, but I do get a lot of my business from contractors. I always have. Uh, I've probably signed about 30 to $40 million in claims in the last seven months through my social media contractor networks. So I reached out to TJ the first time because I was like, all right, I really need to get into these big, large losses. I get them every once in a while, but it's definitely not their bread and butter. My bread and butter still, it's still generally nice, nice size homeowners claims. Um, so I reached out to TJ and I was like, all right, I seen you on Facebook. I need to, I, I want to pick your brain. I want to figure out how to do this. TJ is a large loss adjuster, uh, big time. He does some some pretty, pretty monster losses. Um, what are some of your, uh, I don't want to use the word secrets, but what are some of the ways, a lot of public adjusters listen to this podcast, TJ. What are just some of the ways that you really have been able to establish yourself in that in that realm of, of claims? For me, it's the, the majority of it is relationships. And those are relationships that I've taken time and effort to invest in for months and years, some of them for many years, uh, without ever getting a claim in return. And just consistently continuing to invest in that relationship and work hard to do what I say I'm going to do to protect my reputation. So that when people ask other people, hey, what do you know about TJ Ware? The feedback that they get is positive and encouraging. And uh, that's one of the biggest things that I've done, really, is just really. And so what happened to me, I'll, I'll be real honest with you, Vince. What happened to me, I got to a point here in the last couple of years where I decided all I did was work and I didn't have any friends. And I'm a very social person, so I wanted friends. And I, I just decided one day, hey, I'm doing well. Um, I'm going to stop trying to sell to everybody. And I'm just going to start making some friends out of the people that I like, the people that are successful, the kind of people I want to be around that I get along with. I'm just going to be friendly to them. And, and maybe at least that way, I can have friends in the industry that I work in. And so I can still be working in a way, but I can just make friends with them. That way we have friends now. So I started doing that. And I was really surprised when I stopped trying to sell and I just started to build relationships, the claims just started flooding in. And I didn't expect it. It was it was an unintended consequence. But now I realize that's a big part of sales, especially at a higher level. People that are educated consumers or people that have a lot of assets, they really, really tend to work off of almost referral only uh, in a lot of cases. I mean, it's 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 the bread and butter. I teach public adjusters in the course that we've got. I tell them all the time. It's like it's the most important thing is build relationships with as many people as you can. Uh, one thing I remember about you, our first conversation, was you gave me a referral in our first conversation. 
And I tell people all the time, and it's the truth, and you did it out of the kindness of your heart. You did it because that's sort of, that's, that's, the, that's just the way you are. You like, you, you understand, uh, you understand what BNI, uh, it's an old networking group I used to be a part of. They call it giver's gain where it's the more you okay. give, the more you gain. Uh, you understand that part because eventually if you give, you give, you give, it's, it's like, the, it's like a, a karmic thing too, right? And the better you are to others, the better people are going to be to you. And I tell people all the time, I said, do what you can. And when you meet somebody, try to get them, try to think of ways that you could help them first. And then they're going to be like, wow, okay, cool. Well, here's what I got. I agree, man. That's exactly right. That that's my uh, that's my belief system, and I've spoken at conferences about this exact thing, and, and I really, really push people in my network to expand their referral system within their networks. Because if we all work together and we're all part of a larger network, a rising tide lifts all boats. So I'm glad to give those referrals, and then in turn, Vince, you made a referral. Uh, you referred somebody to me who has really changed my life. Uh, our mutual friend, Eric, who's a business consultant. Um, obviously, I, I'm, I hate to introduce Eric as just a business consultant. I've had some meetings and interviews with him and other people lately. And I'm always very quick to say, well, Eric's not just a consultant. He's also the president of a $30 million a year business, has been for many years. Um, he is... Uh, wise beyond his years. He's, and, uh, he's also my psychologist, my marriage counselor. My <laughs> Yeah, he's added tremendous value to our life. And I'll be honest, I have in turn relayed that value to so many people. Just today, I had a conversation with a pretty good size roofing company owner today about his culture index, his strengths and, and where he can focus uh, to surround himself with certain people that excel in the areas that he's not naturally inclined. So we're talking about Eric Wang. Eric Wang is a part owner. By part owner, it's his brother. It's the two of them. They own Ming Wang Knits. It's a, yes, $30 million plus dollar per year uh, apparel line in Dallas, Texas. And I was there. I actually went to his, uh, his warehouse for the first time. It's freaking huge. Eric. I did too the other day and it was it was such an enjoyable experience because you see him putting all of his uh, his stuff into practice there in his own business. And so I walked into a warehouse that was perfectly organized, clean and neat, and had all of these people silently walking around quickly, getting their job done with efficiency. And it's because he knows how to hire the people that don't need social interaction. They they don't need to go forge their own trail. They have high patience and high attention to detail. And through those assessments, he hires the perfect people to staff his company. And because of that, their efficiency is very, very good. Have you seen his, uh, have you seen his, his spreadsheets? No, no, I haven't. All right. So I feel like I, I need to give context to this. Um, Eric, he owns this company and Eric has been able in his company to, he's been able to establish a hiring process, uh, which basically narrows it down to a handful of different assessments, mainly is the culture index and the strength finder. And through the culture index and the strength finder, he's, uh, he's basically able to, to, to sort of narrow down people's strengths, people's weaknesses, and people's personalities. And how many people work at Ming Wang? I forgot. I don't know, but I didn't know you meant that spreadsheet because yes, we have a Paradise Claims spreadsheet now and it's got tons of people in it. So 
let's say he's got a hundred employees. I don't know. It's around there. Let's say he's got a hundred employees. He's been able, and he's got, he's got a sales department. He's got, uh, he's got a design department. He's got the warehouse department. He's got all these different departments, which take different kinds of people to do different things. If you're going to be stuck in a warehouse all day, TJ and I will freaking shoot ourselves. But there are people that don't want to mingle with others. They prefer to be inside. They like the tedious attention to detail type work where they belong and they actually thrive and they're actually happier in a place like that. He's got spreadsheets, which you've seen, obviously. Um, he's helping setting one up. He's helped setting one up for us as well, where he's got the spreadsheet. He's got like it's like what warehouse department and it's got every employee and all of their stats that they've got. It's like a, it's like looking at a football team and all of their stats and stuff like that. And he was able to move everybody around based on what they've got. The manager role should have something of a little bit more high a, as opposed to people who are under that person too. It's just fascinating how he's able to do that. So Eric and I worked uh, very hard for months and uh, we hired a, I hired a COO this week and he's yeah. actually starting next week a new coo wait wait, um, wait 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 is it this one <laughs> all right sorry <laughs> congratulations man that's awesome fantastic thank you it's huge for us um our our team is expanding and we just have we've we've had a need for somebody with a certain skill set and through eric's assessments we're able to find some of the best candidates I could have ever imagined. I wouldn't have even known how to start this process. I've had a lot of businesses. I've hired a lot of people, but usually I was just rolling the dice and hoping they would work out. And so with these processes um, that a lot of corporations and stuff already implement this stuff, but I think it doesn't, it doesn't cause you to hire the right person every time. What it does is it gets rid of the 85% of applicants that are the wrong person. And I don't know if you're anything like me, which I think you might be, is I I don't I don't necessarily fall in love with a lot of people, but I'm always looking at their best attributes and I'm like, oh, this guy's great. Oh, I like this guy. This guy, yeah, I love this person. And my wife is always just like, uh oh, you always say that. And then what happens? They don't they don't work out. Sure. After, after about yep. a month or two or whatever, I almost hate the person. <laughs> when I thought I thought I really liked them in the beginning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, it's 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 great. I mean, I can see huge application for you, for me, for our industry, and for a lot of people in my network. It's so important. It's just so important to, and for us too. I mean, I thought it was fascinating also when I did it for myself and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess I am kind of like that. I guess I am kind of like that. And then when I was able to find my wonderful assistant, Tammy had her chart, super high attention to detail, has no intention of going out and speaking to anybody or doing any kind of sales whatsoever, but that's not what I need her for. And what she's there for, she's just happy as a you know, happy as a clam, just doing what she's doing and, you know, typing up stuff, typing up letters and doing what I need, doing the stuff that I don't really want to do. Yeah, I definitely believe in it. I think it's amazing. So I'm just overjoyed to have that, you know, in my, in my toolbox now. So, uh, so where, so what is it, what are some of the things that you've got, like that you're excited for any, anything in particular that you would like to share that you're okay with sharing in regards to paradise claims? What are you guys looking at? Um, just a lot of continued growth. We've got the Win the Storm conference coming up in uh, just over a week, I guess a week and a half. That's going to be a huge event for us. It's been a great week this week. I've signed up. I signed up a really big claim, one of the bigger claims I've ever signed up this this week, a few days ago. So that's pretty exciting. Um, you know, just 
a lot of processes, new processes. I'm implementing what's called EOS on Kubernetes operating system. Yeah, in, into our company. And so our COO that we brought on, he had a heavy EOS background. So that was one of the reasons that, that he was selected for that role. And we're very, very excited because we understand that that's going to make our processes more efficient and help us deliver a better service for our clients. Can you explain to those that don't know what EOS, what EOS is? You know, it's a little bit hard to explain at first, but really it's an operating system and a framework for running a business. And it doesn't matter what industry. And essentially it's based off the book Rocket Fuel by Gina Wickman. And then there's some follow-up books, Traction and another one. And it shows, I think the best way for me to explain it, Rocket Fuel talks about visionaries and integrators. Uh, Steve Jobs was a visionary, but Steve Wozniak was, was the integrator. So without Woz, Steve Jobs never actually would have been able to accomplish anything, but he couldn't, he couldn't put his ideas into practice. And Woz would have just been stuck as a computer programmer somewhere. When you put the two together, this great visionary and this uh, uh, very skilled uh, integrator, they were able to create something amazing, Apple, which I know you're not, but I'm on an Apple device right now. So that's a good example of the power in, in the visionary integrator combination. And so the EOS takes those people and puts them into some seats in, in leadership positions over the business. Then they institute a strict accountability chart throughout the business and make sure that all the right people are sitting in the right seats in the company. And that's the basic framework. I, I know it works if it's uh, put into practice properly. So it's something that I'm very, very excited and focused on at the moment. So when I read the book, I crushed that book in like, God, in like four days. It was so good. Easy read too. Like really, just really good book. I strongly recommend it to everybody. I implemented the organizational chart. I just, I just really, I just thought it was really cool the way he had everything broken down in the organizational chart. You've got the visionary, you've got the integrator right below, and then you've got all of sort of like your organizational managers and stuff like that. And I also implemented his perfect 10 meeting. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. The level 10 meetings, that's something I'm really excited about. Um, I, th I think there's a lot of really good principles there. It's going to take a little bit of time for us to implement it, but uh, you know, I'm, I, I have nothing but positive things to say so far. It wasn't bad for us. I mean, you're going to probably do it on a different scale, obviously, uh, but I, I did it just based on me reading the book and I tried to follow it as close as possible. The first three meetings were very clunky. Uh, but it's gotten just so much better. We're done with our meeting right on the hour. And we go through everything. I just tell, I just tell them, I'm like, look, we're going to go through all this sort of quick. Uh, anything that, that comes up where if I say something and we're, and then somebody says, no, we didn't do that or whatever, we're going to put that into the IDS, which is stands for identify, discover, and solve. Um, uh, my favorite part of it, my favorite part of it is the, uh, what we do is we go over the week's numbers. So we have in our charts, because I've got the commercial claim show and stuff like that. We've got courses and everything and subscribers and all that. But we go for the week's claims signed, claims closed. And then we go new subscribers on YouTube, uh, new, new followers on, on Instagram. And we've got a couple other ones that we do. If you've got any other ideas for claims, all I've got is claims open and claims closed, but there probably should be some more. Well, that's cool. I mean, there's, you know, you can quantify any number of steps below it, but uh, I like the metric that, that you're doing there. And that's a really good way to keep a pulse on it. Well, I had never seen it. 
You know, one thing I do, by the way, for Tammy, she's the one that works a lot of our claims in-house. Not from, I mean, we've got the adjusters that sign the claim and they work the claim pretty much, but Tammy's in there for any like little things. I, I give her a bonus every time she's able to sign, uh, close a certain amount of claims. After a certain amount of claims, there's like a bonus. So the fact that we actually keep track of claims signed, claims closed, I had never kept track of that before. And that was cool. The other thing that I like is the to-dos. The to-dos are fantastic because when you give everyone a list of to-dos, for the week. And then you've got your weekly meeting the next week and some person didn't do any of their to-dos. You don't necessarily ream them out. You don't get mad at them or anything like that, but it's it's in front of the entire meeting and everybody else did their to-dos, but you didn't do your to-dos. So now this is all going to go into the IDS. We're going to identify, discover, and solve why the hell you're not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it's great. You know, And so we're really focused on culture. That's been something I've really been pushing lately. We're working on developing a really good culture here at Paradise Claims. And I'm mirroring that off of some of the roofing companies that I've seen that just have amazing, amazing culture. And I started to study that and study the leadership and find out how I can, you know, affect that within our own company. What did you find? I found that it's a lot of different things, um, but a loaded question. <laughs> I, no, that's tough, right? It's a lot of things. So I went to the Christmas party with a construction company, Precision Precision Construction and Roofing, which is one of the, the best roofing companies nationwide. Uh, it's, it's a top roofing company. They may do $100 million in roofs this year, but their roofs are artwork. They're artists at what they do. The guys that work there, I know they're very successful. I didn't know a lot about it. They invited me to the Christmas party. We went. And I heard testimonial after testimonial about how much the company meant to its employees. And that was really surprising to me. And they were devoted to the leadership at the company, not in a cult-like way, but in a way of just pure appreciation and admiration. And I thought to myself, how do you get that? I even asked Eric Hunter that runs it. I said, how do you do that? And he just simplifies it. He says, treat people good. And that's kind of the core. That's the core, you know, idea and principle there. And so if we treat people good, we only uh, surround ourselves with people that buy in to our culture, right? You can't have this great culture and then hire some asshole off the street who's not willing to change his ways and expect to maintain your good culture. And I have oftentimes made compromises with team members. And when I say a compromise, I mean, this guy doesn't follow systems. He's got some, some issues, but he's really, really good sometimes at doing this. Well, I'm no longer compromising on those things. So if you're not a full cultural fit for the company first, then there's nothing else that I can do with you. And you're, you're not going to be one of our new team members because the culture is so important. We can't do anything to jeopardize that. Um, so I live off three words. I know it's a three. No, it's four. Don't be a dick. Yep. <laughs> it's kind of I, I've said for years, we have a no assholes policy and, um, you know, life's too short to deal with that kind of stuff. Ours, we go over oh, in the, in the, in the, what is it called? Perfect 10? No, it's called something else. Level 10. Level 10. In the level 10 yeah. meeting, uh, you start, well, no, actually, I don't think they have it in their meeting. I introduced it from another book that I read, but I have, we have our purpose and overview. So before every meeting, go through, I go through purpose and overview. And our purpose is, our purpose has always been about, and this also goes, goes to what, what I'm trying to build with the commercial claims advocate and all the public adjusters. Our purpose is people. 
uh, it's people. It starts with it starts with us as a team. Right now, there's four of us. It starts with us and only us making sure that we've got each other's back and we're doing everything that we can. Everything that we're doing here, we're trying to make sure that we could provide for our family. You know, my goal is to be able to, to, to build a company successful enough that it could fully provide not just for them, but for their family as well. And for my family also. And then to take it a step further, if we're still talking about people, what we're doing in regards to claims is who are we helping? People policyholders, making sure they don't get screwed around by the insurance company and get the money that they need. In regards to the commercial claims advocate, we're helping people, public adjusters, educating them, making sure that they know what they need to know so that they can be successful to help their policyholders in the long run. So we go over that every single week. I have to be honest, going over that every single week, you're like, I'm just saying the same thing all the time. So I'm like, hey guys, you know, our, our purpose is, you know, I always say it every week and I, I'm sounding like almost apologetic about it. And it was really cool. One of my assistants comes up and says, Vince, you shouldn't apologize about that. He's like, it's good that you tell us this every single week. He's like, because come down the road as we continue to grow, that's what's going to be embedded in our culture is just helping each other out, helping our family and helping everybody else, everybody else as much as we can. And I just thought that was really cool. Like, cause I was kind of apologetic, bored saying it again. He was just like, no, like you need to tell us this every single week. I'm like, yeah. I like that. I like that. That's really cool. I was reading a book today, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And uh, they talked about it. Five, it was dysfunctions, a fable. five dysfunctions of a Team? I believe that's the title of the book. Uh, it was recommended by our new COO. So I'm reading it. I'll finish it probably tonight or tomorrow. And they set up a meeting. And, and what they were identifying is that although one person may be sitting in the seat of sales manager, everybody in the company has to take ownership over sales because when that person brings on a customer and it gets handed off to every other department in this business, everyone has an impact on the ability for that next referral and the reflection back on the company. And so the team mentality, you know, that, that your guy just discussed is very important. That's an important part of a good culture. I love talking about business. I can talk about business all day. Um, what was the book? Not Rocket Fuel, but that you guys were telling me about dinner the other day. That's like the 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 next one that I should read. Traction. Traction. Somebody's messaged me on somebody messaged me on Facebook the other day, and it's like, dude, you're always talking about books on your channel and stuff. You need to like, just can you tell me the list because I forgot which one it is. I need to know what books to read. Well, that's good. You should start putting together a book list if you don't have one. I should, I should. And then I could make it as an affiliate with Amazon and get a percentage of sales. Hey, that's not a bad idea. Entrepreneur, just trying to think, you know, got to think outside. There the you mind. go. Definitely. Hurricanes. I'm changing the subject, whatever, because I got it on my list anyway. Tell me about Hurricane Laura, because you wanted to talk about it. I said, TJ, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. And you're like, Hurricane Laura. Tell me, because you've got a really cool promo video, which by the way, if you guys don't know, if you go to Paradise Claims on YouTube, I think it's there. Uh, he's got a really cool promo video of like, dude, you were like driving out there in the middle of the freaking storm, you psychopath. Yeah, no, it was crazy. It's been a huge part of our life since the end of August of last year. So we went in really heavy. And, and once we got in, we were in too deep to really back out of it. So we stuck with it. The situation was so difficult that five public adjusters on my team quit in the first three weeks. Oh, it was brutal. It was it was horrible. I felt 
gutted. A lot of our team didn't want to go down there. They didn't want to stay down there. And these are the reasons I'm addressing culture. I will make sure before I ever go into that situation again, that everybody is completely on board on the same page and willing to make the same sacrifices. And if they're not, I would at least like to know beforehand which guys aren't wanting to make the same sacrifices so that we can plan for that. And so that's a lesson that I learned. It's the most difficult professional situation I've ever been in in my life. The city had no power, no water. Uh, Some parts of it didn't have electricity for over a month. The structures were destroyed. People's homes were destroyed and the insurance companies exhibited the worst behavior I have ever seen after a natural disaster. For example? Well, for example, data loss is uh, August 27th or 29th. I don't recall. Uh, It's the end of August. And there's a lot of people that still haven't gotten an ACV check. Oh, no. There are families, families living in tents in their front yard eight weeks after the storm. They have AOE coverage. They paid for it. Insurance company won't pay it. State Farm. Thank you, State Farm. Don't mention. I I have to tell people not to mention. You're like, I don't care. (laughs) I don't sue me. When you look look into a mom's eyes and she says, the adjuster came and told me that as long as I can feed my kids out of a can of beans, they don't need to pay ALE. It gets a little personal sometimes. Yeah, that's brutal. Um, the only thing I could compare that to where I've been there is uh, Hurricane Michael up in the panhandle. It's brutal. It's tough. Yeah. I tell people, you know, it's funny. When I first started my career, I'm not going to lie. I used to root for the hurricanes. Turn left, turn left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want it to hit us. Let's hit us. And my friends don't believe me. But now, now I start to get like a, I start to get like a, a anxiety. Blood pressure starts to go up for several reasons. Uh, one of them is just, I know it sounds stupid because yeah, we're in a business and it's how we make money. I know it sounds stupid, but it's so much work. You know this. It's so freaking stressful. It's so much work when you've got all of these claims and you have to look out for everyone. And I know like you, like me, we're very prideful about what we do. We want to make sure that we do the best job possible. So that's one reason, but whatever. It's the fact that we've seen the destruction that these storms cause. And it's just, it's brutal, man. It's just, it's really tough when you walk into a place, when you drive into a place and it's just, you just see, um, you just see foundations and no home. A category four or a category five is another ball game. Man. It's, it's like a tornado. It's a whole other world. People don't get that. People, people don't understand. And what happened, Hurricane Michael came, uh, I believe, just about six months or so, a few months, maybe it was a year. I don't know. But it was close to the, the hurricane in Puerto Rico. And I remember Hurricane Michael hit, and it seemed like the news coverage was still in Puerto Rico, and Hurricane Michael in the panhandle was kind of completely forgotten. And when I went over there, I was like, this is just not right. Same thing happened with, uh, with Hurricane Laura. Also, it's Louisiana. It's a very poor part of the country. Right. Uh, if anything, the, the news was more interested in how it would affect the oil and energy infrastructure, not really the human element there. And that's very unfortunate. Now, we did a lot of things to really shed light on it. We brought in the lieutenant governor, uh, the insurance commissioner, and through the APA, we did a lot of work there. We've even, you know, I testified in front of Congress in Louisiana last December, 
and I've helped draft some legislation to address some of the issues in Louisiana. Uh, so, you know, there were people working to try to bring light to the situation, but on a national scale, especially in a COVID year, there just really wasn't much press. I didn't sign any claims for about two days because all I was doing was helping people with tarps, helping people with food, helping people with all kinds of stuff, because I felt bad to go and just, Hey, Hey, look, here's what I do. Sign my contract. And it's like, uh, I was like, no, let me just help you with this tarp. Let me help you do this. Let me help you do that. It's, it's tough. People are desperate, man. When you go to a place like that, that's just been decimated and you see the look on people's faces, it, it's, it sucks. And that's the part that gets me the high anxiety is thinking, okay, if this thing hits, especially in Florida, because this is where my real home is, it's like, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to have to deal with that. And it's like, oh, it's tough. One of, you know, one of the biggest challenges I'm having now is that we want to provide amazing customer service and help these clients. We do a lot of commercial claims, but down in Hurricane Laura, we did do a lot of residential claims because they're huge claims, they're total losses. And some of those customers, we've done everything we could for our clients and the insurance companies won't pay. And so now it's several months later, their houses are still destroyed. They haven't gotten the money and they're mad at everybody including us sometimes. And it's almost heartbreaking for me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what I do is I just explain to them right off the bat that it's, it's probably going to be difficult. And the thing is, is that everybody's used to a time back 20 years ago when insurance companies were a little bit, you know, more lenient and they would be willing to pay and stuff like that. But, you know, between it's just all the, between just, just storms after storms after storms and just, insurance companies sort of figuring out different ways that they could save money and cut, cut on costs. It's just the nature, it's the nature of the beast. It's what we have to deal with. And I tell them right off the bat, it's going to be difficult. We're doing the best we can. We literally follow up every seven days and even following up every seven days and even notifying the state and even, even filing complaints and then eventually filing lawsuits. It's just, it just takes time. You know, they've, they've figured out one of the best ways to ensure that they pay out less in claims is through delay. After a while, people just give up or they'll accept that lower number. So delay is one of the worst ways that they do it. And it's hard on everybody. I think the insurers in, in southwestern Louisiana just wanted to starve everybody out. The attorneys, the public adjusters and the contractors. There's a lot of contractors down there going bankrupt because they can't get paid on the work that they did just to get the structures dry after the storm. I think people underestimate a public adjuster's ability to close a claim. You know, it depends on some certain factors. Uh, there's some, some claims that we do really great on. We knock them out of the park. It moves quick and fast. But there's some claims that whether or not I realized it in the beginning, it was destined for litigation. It was always destined for litigation. There was a human factor influencing the decisions on the other side that were never going to act in a reasonably way, in a reasonable way. And so because of that, Unfortunately, the claim was destined for lit litigation. I see that sometimes. And when that's the case, we really have very little effective power because one of the first lessons I think public adjusters must learn is that we can't force the insurance company to do anything. Only a court can force them. We can do everything to prepare it for that step. And we can really put a lot of pressure and leverage on them. But if it has to go to court, it, unfortunately, it's out of our hands. Yeah, it is what it is. Uh, speaking of of delay, <laughs> I have one of my guys. Uh, he's he's uh, he signed a bunch of claims and none of them are closing. And I try to watch over the claims as much as I can, obviously. But I've got my own claims that I got to work on. 
And uh, he's got, so we real, I realized, dude, you've got all these claims. Like, why haven't you closed them all? He's like, oh, and he tells me today. He's like, oh, well, because I know eventually they'll get paid. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, do you know the only person, do you know, do you know who is the happiest about this, about delaying it and it, it going so far is the insurance companies. You think the insurance companies are in a rush? I said, if we don't push them, they're going to just let it drag out for as long as you can because those premiums keep coming in, baby. And at the end of every year, they get audited and they've got this scale that they look at. It's not a scale, but it's like a, something like that where they have to see premiums received, claim paid out, premium received, claim paid out. So the longer that they delay and the more you're paying your premium, the more their numbers are going to, the better their numbers are going to look at the end of every year. You know, an interesting thing that I tell a lot of people, and this is a very valuable piece of information that I've learned from the stuff that I've done, is uh, one of the first things that we deal with and tackle when we go into a claim is reserves, claim reserves. Some people don't understand the importance and some of the intricacies that go into setting the reserves. And also another thing that the claim reserves are used for is to calculate reinsurance rates. So these reserves that they set, they're, they're looking at how much money they have out in reserve in order to calculate these reinsurance rates, which means the insurance companies sometimes don't want to continually raise that reserve if you incrementally push that claim higher. That's why our philosophy is to go in heavy in the beginning with a proof of loss that will help set the reserve so that money is set aside early in the claim, less chance of going to litigation in the long run. This is something that I'd like for you that this is something that interests me because this is not something I know too much about. I think that's really interesting. Is nobody does. Nobody okay. does. The claims that you're talking, you're talking about these multi-million dollar claims where if 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 they come in not knowing that it's a multi-million dollar claim, they've already got these reserves set to a certain amount, say, I don't know, let's say a hundred thousand dollars. And if they come in like that, it's going to be very difficult to get their, to get their limits of what they're able to pay out to get it up. So it's almost better to let them know right on the phone, right in the beginning, say, Hey, look, before you come out here, let me just tell you this, bring this to a large loss adjuster, escalate this immediately, because when you come out here, you're going to be in for, for a surprise. That's exactly right. <clears throat> the initial adjuster selection for who the carrier sends right. is an important part of that process because you don't want some newbie out there that doesn't have the experience or the authority you know, to, to extend that coverage or to write that check. Uh, I would say there's one situation where we will strategically play it differently, and that's if either the damage is somewhat marginal or if it's a certain type of damage that we know is very likely to be denied. For instance, I had a large EPDM claim on the East Coast recently. They told me it was a wind event, but it came apart at a repair. You know, an EPM is rubber that's glued together. And so usually we would go in, build a $2.5 million proof of loss, file the claim with the proof of loss in the very beginning. In this scenario, if they looked into it and figured out that it was a repair that was torn apart on the rubber, it's very likely they would have just sent an engineer right at the beginning and denied causation on wear and tear. And because I knew that possibility was there, we played a different strategy. I told the roofer, I said, we don't want to sign them up yet. We want you to go out there with the adjuster and meet with them and don't give a lot of information, just say you want to get this fixed. And hopefully they'll extend some coverage so that now we can use the fact that the roofing system's compromised by moisture to extrapolate that repair into a full replacement. They came out there, extended coverage for a $16,000 repair, 
for the wind damage to the roof, which was exactly what we needed to accomplish. Now, how difficult was it to really to get to what not I'm not saying that you've resolved the claim yet, but how was it in no. regards to what we were talking about, extending reserves and stuff like that? So that's the one drawback of that strategy is now you have to fight harder on the reserves. But because we've done this so many times and seen an engineer go out there and just label something as wear and tear and deny wind as a causation, which would have been wrong, but I see it happen so often that I felt like it would be better to fight the reserve battle than it is to fight the open coverage battle. Because if we don't have coverage open, we, we have so fewer resources. For instance, appraisal. Appraisal is not really a good option unless they open coverage. So that allows us to have an additional tool in our toolbox if we can get the coverage established. I don't even think it is an option. If, it, there's, if the claim is denied, I don't even think appraisal is an option. It's pretty much mediation and that's it. Technically, technically you can still go to appraisal because there is a dispute over the value of the loss. Right. But that doesn't mean they won't just try to reject it. So I've, I've been through this many, many times. And the, basically, the answer is you really need to try to have coverage open on something. We talk about it all the time. I tell the guys, I said, one dollar, just get a dollar. Yeah, just $1. something. I mean, it doesn't have to be more than the, the deductible. Nope. But oftentimes, if it's below deductible, the insurance adjuster will try to get the homeowner essentially just to accept no documentation. Oh, we're just going to close the claim. It's below deductible. No, sir. Show me what you're writing up. Send it out to us. Even if it's below deductible, let us take a look at it. Yeah, seriously. One thing I've noticed when reinsurance kicks in is after a storm, it's usually about three or four months or five or six months or something like that. You can tell that reinsurance kicks in because they start contacting you and trying to settle all the claims. It's interesting how that happens in different ways, but it's nice when that does happen. And finally, they want to play ball and they want to get these claims off their books. I mean, in Florida, we have been talking about it for years. It just doesn't make any sense sometimes. Where all they, they want to spend money on an engineer, which is going to cost them whatever it's going to cost them to go out there and write up their report. Uh, it's going to cost them money in litigation when if they could just play, play ball with us, you know, it's, it, it, it would honestly save them so much more money in the long run. If they just rolled over every time a PA was engaged, our, our profession would really explode, okay? And it, when 87% of claims are not contested to start with, their actuaries have discovered that their methodology of delay, deny, defend makes them money in the long run. TJ, um, real quick, list, list me the states that you're licensed in. Oh, goodness. If you're a lot of them all. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, uh, come on, come on. I want you to go like this. Go, let's go. Yeah. Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, uh, Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, Montana, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Tennessee, Missouri, Iowa, Illinois. I think that's most of them. Maryland. <laughs> did I say Maryland? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> how do you deal with all of the different laws and statutes? And I mean, every state has got its little differences, right? Or major differences. That's one of the, that's, that's a big challenge that, that we have to deal with. It's interesting that insurance is state specific. So that's, that's another challenge. We have a, a master binder uh, with every state and it's different laws some interpretations, a specific letter of rep and contract for that state as well. That's crazy. 
I don't, I don't even know how you do it. How do you, I don't even know how you keep up with that stuff. Cause I'm in, I, I signed a bunch of claims in Texas. It's driving me fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's different. And sometimes you'll realize that you're thinking like you're in another state <laughs> and when, when you're trying to adjust a claim. And so you've got to go, wait, wait, let's go back to the drawing board on this one because this may not work the same in this state. Um, any advice to what I've noticed in Texas is that they, the depreciation levels is just off the charts compared to Florida. Any advice on my dispute process? Well, you know, depreciation is based on age and condition. So even if it's a little bit older, but it's been well-maintained, then there's a lot of reason that they should reduce that depreciation amount. Of course, if it's not an ACB policy, then... I usually don't fight for it that much. I'll tell you, there's like there's companies, roofing companies that specialize in very, very high-end roofing products on homes. And the amount of money they're able to get paid is so high on these that a low, a low holdback for depreciation may influence their client to try to go a different direction. So I know that sometimes they will request the maximum amount of depreciation be applied Why? so that their so that their customer realizes they've actually got to get the work done to get that other 200,000 out of a $350,000 claim. Gotcha. Gotcha. But like the, the, the dispute process, uh, is it beneficial for me to just try to negotiate with the desk adjuster with when I provide them with my estimate? Should I go straight to appraisal on this? Should I just try mediation? Should I notify the state? You got any advice? I don't know. Just on the on the depreciation? No, 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 no. On the whole claim in general. Because now oh. what I signed over there was just people who've been underpaid. I'm coming in on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say it would definitely depend on the, the merits of each individual claim. You know, I usually revert, uh, review several different things about a claim when I make those decisions and then we'll, we'll review a claim. We'll decide, do we continue to argue this? Um, as far as uh, DOI complaints, we do make them sometimes, but we don't, we don't expect it to impact the file that we're working on. It worked in Florida. Really? We get there uh, really fast. So uh, some I've seen it have some negative issues too, because now all of a sudden the guy that may have been inattentive, now he's got a chip on his shoulder. And so that can be a challenge. I, we've done it a lot. I don't know that it's ever had a direct impact on the claim, but sometimes when we refer them to legal, uh, the attorneys like to see that because that's a bit of a, a record that can show you know, that at least somebody's opinion was that they were in non-compliance. Unfortunately, I, sometimes the department of insurance doesn't respond well, and that's a big deal state by state. Some DOIs are, are very adversarial public adjusters, which makes no sense. But if you think about it, usually the person who is head of the department of insurance, oftentimes it's one of those revolving doors between the insurance industry and, and, and government. So they're very connected to the insurance carriers sometimes. One of my goals with the commercial claims advocate, one of my goals with us doing meetups uh, all over the country, uh, we had, we we were expecting 30. We had almost 100 at the Orlando meetup. Uh, about 60% public adjusters, 10% uh, attorneys, 20% contractors, 
And another, I don't know if I'm off of my percentage here, so excuse me for who's doing I think you had 20 left or something. Oh, okay. And I had about, we had about 10 or 15% uh, independent adjusters. Oh, wow. That's cool. You know, I hear that those guys are, are jumping ship. They message me every day. Every day I get messaged by, not every day, but at least once or twice a week, I get messaged by an independent adjuster looking to jump ship or an independent adjuster who just jumped ship. The guys that have a lot of skill and integrity are finding fewer and fewer carriers that they feel comfortable working for. Well, yeah, because it's an integrity thing, right? That's what's happening is they're going in and they're writing up everything that they feel needs to be written up to come to find out later, a fraction of that was actually paid to the, to the insured. Absolutely. Which also cuts their pay down. Which cuts their pay down as well. Exactly. Uh, so I had to definitely defend our industry just the other day uh, with somebody. Just They were just, you know, uh, like, not naive, but they just, you know, didn't, didn't understand because they've always heard the bad things about public adjusters. And I'm just like, look, uh, I mean, you have to just think about what we do. Like what we do is we, we are literally looking out for the policyholder. I tell potential clients all the time. I said, by law, by law, my license states that I have to do everything that I can to defend you. If I don't do that, if I've got a financial interest in it, or if I'm trying to do something else on the side, or I'm trying to help the insurance company in any way, I can lose my license for that. I said, so it's my job to do that, number one. Number two, how are you going to refer me to anybody if I don't do the best that I can for you? So it just, to me, what I'm trying to do with all that, back to what I was trying to get to, is I'm really trying to really change. I will, I'm hoping I could sort of change the status quo because let me tell you, and you know this, a room full of public adjusters is really cool, man. Let me tell you, a room full of public adjusters is one of the coolest things. We all get to talk shop. We're all, we all have all these experiences, all this related experiences. We're all going through a lot of the same crap. We're all fighting against the same people. There's no reason for us to be competing against one another. We need to be joining forces because at the end of the day, the ones who we're competing against is the insurance company, unfortunately, but it's just is what it is. Now, you know, one of the issues that we deal with in a lot of states is that Florida public adjusters give us a bad name. Okay. What's up, you familiar bro? with that? I mean, so, so number one, you talk about people talking about public adjusters. Florida is one of the few places where a lot of people know what a public adjuster is. True. In a lot of states, people have never heard of them. But then there are also a lot of public adjusters. I did work for the insurance carriers years ago for a very short period of time uh, after Hurricane Irma. And uh, we would run into public adjusters who wouldn't write an estimate. They couldn't and wouldn't write an estimate, a lot of them. And they're just waiting on the insurance company to write an estimate. And how you do it? No. And so that was pretty frustrating. And some of the estimates that I saw, residential, maybe a 30,000 residential uh, loss. And their estimate was $278,000. So... That's what I'm also trying to do with this is I'm trying to educate these guys so that they don't do that bullshit either. I mean, it's just, exactly. it just doesn't make any sense being adversarial. I've got a lot of buddies in South Florida that they meet a, they meet an independent adjuster and they're just like ready to go to war. And I'm like, guys, that's you know, not what we're doing here. Friend, we are friendly and in a supportive role for the insurance company. When they come out, we want to help them. We want to assist them with documentation, with information. Um, I'll help them get on the roof. I'll help them mark damage. We'll do whatever it takes to have a good working ship, a relationship with them. Oftentimes, we'll have our ESX ready on a thumb drive to hand over to them if they're an IA and they're able to accept it. I want to do as much of their job as I can for them. 
And I'll be honest with you, we had a loss here a couple of years, about a year ago, maybe on a hotel. It was an IA. Um, it's a three-story hotel, difficult to access. He was like in Ohio and he calls and he says, Hey, do you have any photos? And so, Oh yeah, we've got everything. We can send you all this stuff. We ended up sending him all of our documentation, everything. He never left Ohio and bought the whole loss because we did all the work for him. I've done that before too. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. But what's up, Florida adjusters? Did you hear what TJ just said? TJ's not from Florida. And that's what he hears through the grapevine. So Florida adjusters, all you adjusters that message me all the time and you're asking me, what should I do here? And what should I do there? And this and that? Well, I can tell you what, stop screwing around and take your job seriously. Yeah, we've got to police our own a little bit. Uh, it's really not that hard to become a public adjuster. Well, let me say, it's not that hard to get a public adjuster's license. That's what I meant to say. Actually becoming a competent public adjuster takes a lot more work than just getting a license. And it's important that people in the industry understand that. I agree. Uh, it took me about five or six years. And that's when I really, as I just started to get better and better and better, I became extremely prideful of my job. And I get, I'm, and whenever anybody talks smack about public adjusters, I'm just like, wait, they're not all like that. Every industry's got their bad apples. We've got ours, but frankly, like I said, we're out here for the common good. Which is that's best. exactly right. Um, you know, you're part of the APA as, as am I, the American Policyholder Association. Doug Quinn often talks about uh, the executive director, Doug, he talks about how there's a certain portion of the population who is willing to commit fraud. Those people exist in policyholders, contractors, insurance adjusters, engineers, insurance executives. There's a certain portion of the population who's willing to sacrifice their integrity for profit, and it exists across the board. It's unfortunate that when you, when you see it in the news, it's only on the consumer side that seems to receive any scrutiny. And I'm looking forward to some things changing that conversation. Well, I mean, Doug's story is fantastic. I had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago or a couple of episodes ago. Uh, and it's funny, Doug's story is the same story that I'm watching 60 Minutes one day. And they're talking about all these fabricated engineering reports from Hurricane Sandy. 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 Mm -hmm. And it's just the insurance companies basically fabricating these engineering reports to say that it's pre-existing damage. And all this damage that was caused by, by the wind by Hurricane Sandy was not covered. That's crazy. Well, I've seen I've seen egregious uh, engineer reports nationwide. It happens all the time, and they get to try to say, "Well, this is my opinion," and because of that, they're not able to pin them with fraud. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. God, I got these people putting on baseboards, and it's just like nail after nail after nail. Hey, um, Storm Ventures Group, they'll be win the storm. You ready? Man, I'm I'm excited. I'm ready. It's incredible. Um, My wife bought a dress. Right. What? My wife bought a dress. Nice. That's, That's exciting. Better. Yeah, she's ready to go. But here's what I wanted to tell you. Okay, it was it was something funny I wanted to mention to you. So we looked okay. through the photos, right? So for those of you who don't know, I'm obviously sorry, TJ. If I'm so like uh, open <laughs> with the with the stuff that I say, I just think it's more entertaining. I'm not hiding nothing. I called TJ the other day. I said, TJ, my wife's freaking out. Damn, this freaking people. My wife's freaking out. She doesn't know what to do. She wants to make sure. Oh, my wife's going to kill me too. She wants to make sure that she wears the right thing to these. Because by the way, when the storm coming up a couple of weeks, uh, all of us, were all very excited and we're all VIP and we've got some very fancy parties that we're going to. So I know you're excited. I'm excited. My wife's excited, but she wants to make sure that she's dressed for the occasion. 
So we're thinking about, I call TJ, TJ, uh, talk to Jackie. What is my wife going to wear? And you're just like, Hey, don't worry. This, this, and that you wear this, this, and that all will be good. So she starts looking at it and you're like, why don't you look at these photos? So we look at the photos and I have to be honest with you, TJ, that's another Tuesday night in Miami. <laughs> yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> she looks at it. She's like, Oh, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. We're just like, yeah, that's just another Tuesday night in Miami. But she did. She bought a dress. Really, really nice. Uh, I'm excited. She looks great, which is awesome. Did she buy another one? She bought one or two or something like that. So we're pretty excited. Um, she's ready to go. I'm ready to go. And uh, I think it's going to be awesome. You said that the energy there is just like off the chain, right? Huge. It's going to be more this year too, because it's so late in the year. It's after kind of the storm season and everything has already picked up. So the energy is going to be huge. They do this little ambassador competition. So I just got a call today that they're going to be flying me down there on a private jet and stuff Ooh, to New Orleans. So nice. That'll be fun to save the airfare. <laughs> <laughs> that's true too. Uh, that's right. For those of you that don't know, uh, TJ is being voted for best public adjuster of the year. He's being voted for most influential of the year. He's being- No, it's Hurricane Hero. Hurricane just, Hero. Just two awards, yeah. He's being voted for overall badass. He's being voted for best haircut. He's being voted for, right? No. Good ideas for next year. <laughs> Maybe for next year. Yeah, I'm excited. It's my first one, so I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I can get into the voting next year. What the hell, man? Gee. Yeah, actually, um, you've got a good shot at most influential, man. This thing's blowing up. So you had reached out to me, but before you had reached out to me here a few months ago, one of my public adjusters, and he was newer, and he had been, he's a, he's a young guy, he's watching YouTube, and, and he's pulling up, he's like, look at this Vince Perry guy, this Vince Perry, he's an expert, and he's all this stuff, and and he's like, TJ, you need to, you need to learn from this guy, this guy's amazing, and I was, I was like, I was, okay, maybe a little threatened, I was like, do you know who you work for, <laughs> but um, he's actually super jealous because he wants to meet you, so He's coming to win the storm. My entire team have VIP tickets. So I'll make sure to get a picture of you and Sawyer together at the conference. It's so funny. I walk into, I call, uh, I call, uh, I call Frank, Frank Dalton. Uh, I was going to do an SVG event. Uh, the one in they had in Orlando. First one I was going to go to is like one of those, you know, on the road, whatever SVGs win the storm. Yeah. Road to win the storm. Um, I call, I think I even texted you. I texted you. I texted Pate. And I'm like, I'm like, guys, I'm going to my first thing here. Who should I meet? So Pate goes, you need to meet Frank Dalton. Really cool guy. He knows his stuff. I'm like, all right, cool. So he sends, Pate's like you. Pate's like us, right? Pate's awesome at just connecting people. Pate yep. does a quick three-way text. Here, look, Vince, he's really cool, blah, blah, blah. You guys should meet. Frank's like, all right, awesome, no problem. I think I talked to him briefly on the phone. So again, I don't know anybody. I want to like have an in. This is the first time I go out to anywhere, right? I walk into this place and one person comes from the side and it's just like, oh, hey, you're Vince. You're Vince from that from the YouTube show, right? And I'm just like, yeah, what's going on? Oh, can we take a selfie together? I'm like, this is just weird. What's what's going on here? Frank's not there. I call him or he sends me a text. Sorry, I couldn't make it. I said, no big deal. The next day uh, I wake up and um, he shoots me a text. We talk for about, for a good 15 minutes, just about the industry. And I'm like, dude, I'm in Orlando. I said, I don't have much to do except drive back to Tampa. I said, you mind if I stop by the office? He's like, sure, no problem. 
So I stopped by the office and that's the funniest thing that's ever happened. I stopped by and I'm like, oh, hi, I'm, my name is Vince Perry. I'm here to see Frank Dalton. Oh, okay, no problem. Uh, I'll take you back to his office. One adjuster comes from the left in his cubicle. Hey, Vince, nice to meet you, man. I love your channel so much. Another adjuster comes from another corner. Hey, Vince, nice to meet you. Frank's, uh, Frank's sister comes. Oh, Vince, hey, nice to meet you. Oh my goodness, I love your channel. I'm just like, this is like, this is becoming a thing. It's weird. That's so cool, man. I like Frank. Me and Frank are buddies. We were just talking last night. Um, and we've worked together too on some on some projects. I've had a lot of times where I'm I can sell more than my company can even adjust. So I've outsourced claims to to a lot of companies. The bit, you know, big companies that we all know all around, you know, all around Frank the nation, knows, really. Frank, Frank knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah, Frank's great. Um, so, you know, we're, we're buddies and, and we've worked together in the past. I'm sure we'll work together again in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, TJ, that's, uh, that's all I've got. Yeah. Did you have fun? Well, I had fun. You weren't the, you didn't, you did not know anybody at the Orlando event. You actually started running into old tennis subjects. I knew that. <laughs> So I think most people know I was a tennis instructor for 15 years. And the, one of the sales people, one of the big up there sales people for SVG, David, you son of a gun, used to be my student when he was about 10 years old. I thought that was so funny. It, me and David are buddies too. So I thought that was cool. Well, the funny thing is, imagine you see somebody who's, I don't know what he is, 21, 22 years old, and I hadn't seen him for, what, 10 years or so? And I'm like, I don't know who the hell this guy is, but hey, all right. And then he mentions tennis. I'm like, all right, that narrows it down. One of my students, that's crazy. And then it took me several hours to actually remember the student. I just remember him, this little, short, little 10-year-old with big, big blue eyes, man, big blue eyes. And he was just the cutest kid, good kid. Funny. It's great to, you know, have networks and build networks. You're doing it. I'm doing it. Uh, I'm excited about doing it every day. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you guys at Win the Storm. And uh, I think we're going to have a great year this year. I think it's going to be fantastic. DJ, thank you so much, man. Vince, have a good weekend. All right. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>